As the racing season winds down, the separation season begins. Now, when I say separation season, I don't mean the season to separate yourself from racing, although that's exactly what many of your competitors are doing. And that provides an opportunity for you to separate from the pack. Within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we focus on growth year-round, but the gains, they're, they're small, they're incremental during race season for two reasons. Number one, because your attention as a racer is split, right? You've got upkeep, maintenance, travel, all the things involved with the racing season, in addition to a focus on your own growth. And because other racers are working hard at that time too. It's this time of year, this separation season, where putting in the work can really allow you a leg up on the competition. If you're serious about doing just that, and you'd like to surround yourself with a group of knowledgeable trainers and accountable peers with the tools, the resources, the wisdom to help you take that next step, and perhaps even with the occasional kick in the pants to keep you on track, this is Bracket Racing Elite is the answer. We've helped thousands of racers just like you take the next step toward becoming the best version of themselves on the racetrack. Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November 27th, and it closes December 8th. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. Today's podcast is brought to you in part by This Is Bracket Racing Elite. If you're an open-minded racer with a desire to improve on the racetrack, This Is Bracket Racing Elite can provide the tools to help you do so. In addition, today's podcast is presented by the rescheduled Great American Bracket Race and All-State Challenge. Galen and Britt are promoting the 10th annual Moser Great American Bracket Race and All-State Challenge this November. Stay tuned for more information. And it's all that we know, it's the way you lie. everyone and welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jed. I'm Big Jed, Jared Pennington. He's cool hand Luke Bogacki. If you're a regular listener, thank you for your patronage. If you're new, you'll probably catch on soon enough. Our goal is to shed some light on the events, news, and issues in Sportsman Drag Racing and the stars within it. Well, Luke, it is episode 100. Welcome, my friend. Yeah, cheers. Where's the kazoo? <laughs> we need a kazoo. You know, it is episode 100. It, this was a very exciting episode for us uh, that we've been talking about for weeks and weeks. But all the things that we thought we would do in episode 100, I guess we didn't realize what would take place just prior to episode 100 being recorded. So we've got nothing special, but man, what a show is this going to be. It was really poor planning on our part, Big Jed. Almost two years ago, when we started this thing, we should have had the foresight to realize that episode 100 was going to fall the week after the Million Dollar Race, and we'd have probably the longest episode in Sportsman Drag Racing podcast history without doing anything special to commemorate episode 100. Shame on us. <laughs> yeah, we we missed on that a little bit, but we will not disappoint the listeners this week, guaranteed. The million, obviously, is going to dominate this show, but it's going to be well worth it to the listener. I think so. And those of you that have been panning for a two-hour-long podcast, 
both of you? You're getting your wish. I have that feeling. This is going to go a while. We are a day late with the release on this. This will be coming out Thursday. When you guys listen to it, it's Wednesday night as we record. The reasonings for that, Big Jed has kickball. I had uh, Saluki FanFest. We've got our priorities here, okay? <laughs> yeah, we got a lot going on. <laughs> give, us a, give us a little bit of slack. But this show, as you mentioned, Jed, will be worth it. Possibly, probably the wildest, most bizarre million dollar race in the history of million dollar races all 23 of them we got a lot to unpack we will be joined by both finalists both kenny underwood your winner and Corey galetti your runner-up but first big jed we didn't coordinate this with pj so i'm going to need you to pipe in with a drop right here can you handle it <laughs> yeah i don't remember exactly how he does it but i would say what no one is talking about but everybody should be talking about Brilliant. Couldn't have scripted it any better. Is that good? That was awesome. (laughs) We're going to be million-dollar race heavy. We're going to be million-dollar race dominant here on this episode of the podcast. But I thought it was worth noting before we get too deep into it. Three weeks now remain on the NHRA schedule for 2018 with four events remaining at which sportsman racers can earn points. We've got this weekend divisional event at Noble, Oklahoma, the one that got rained out a couple of weeks ago and will be made up, as well as a national event at Las Vegas. Next weekend, the final Lucas Oil Series event of the season at Las Vegas. And then, of course, the world finals at Pomona. However... A couple of huge performances last weekend while all of us were caught up in the million that I didn't want to get lost in today's discussion. Super comp, Mike Rabalato, clutch, clutch, Big Jed. Win at Rockingham. It was his last race at which to claim points. He had to win the race to overtake Chris Gerritsen and take the national points lead. Guess what Mike Rabalato did at Rockingham? No way. Won the race. Took wow, the national points lead. That was Saturday evening. Unfortunately for Mr. Rabalato, that lead lasted less than 24 hours. Don Nichols, on Sunday at Gateway, advanced to the quarterfinal round and overtook Rabalato, who just overtook Gerritsen. Now Don Nichols is your Supercomp National Points leader. And honestly, Nichols can still claim points at each of the, the three weekends remaining. I assume he's Vegas, Vegas, Pomona. He can get points at all of them. Barring a major surprise, I think Don Nichols is going to win the Supercomp Championship. There are others with a mathematical shot right now, but they would almost have to win their last race or races, and Nichols would have to fail to improve in three attempts. Possible, but it's looking really good for the Nebraska runner. And that means, Big Jed, unfortunately, (laughs) Chris Gerritsen will not be the 2018 NHRA Supercomp World Champion. Uh, The... That just ruined my weekend. He made a heck um, of a run, though. He did. It was awesome to watch. It was awesome to root him on. It was really cool to see a 120-ish mile-per-hour super comp dragster advance this deep and be such a part of the discussion this long. Chris Gerritsen will finish in the top five. That, in and itself, major accomplishment. On my end, Big Jed... Chris Gerritsen was Team Luke, not looking good for Team Luke and Supercomp. And my promised rant from last week, my promised Division One rant, it just doesn't seem like it's going to resonate at this point. So I'm going to table that. You guys aren't off the hook yet. That may be coming somewhere in the future, but <laughs> not this week. In Super Gas, Big Jed, Ray Sawyer almost went Robolato on him. Ray Sawyer came to Gateway. That's a long way from Massachusetts. 
came to Gateway for the mm-hmm. final Division Three event. He had to win the race to overtake Devin Eisenhower and take the national points lead. Sawyer advanced to the semifinal round. So you can bet Devin and his dad, who were there, got a little nervous, had a little tense moment there. Sawyer ends up falling in the semifinals, comes up a round and a half short, currently sits in second in Supergas. There are a handful of drivers with a mathematical shot to catch and surpass Devin Eisenhower, but realistically, it's probably down to Aaron Kennard. Kennard has both the national event in Vegas and the divisional at which to claim points, but it's really going to come down to this weekend at the national event. If Aaron Kennard can win round five, he would surpass Devin and take the points lead. If he wins round one and loses some time before round six, it will wait till next week. He would then have a mathematical shot at the division race. So basically, unless Aaron Kennard loses in round one, that would essentially clinch the championship for Eisenhower. Or if Aaron Kennard wins round five, that would essentially clinch the championship for him. Anywhere in between, we'll wait another week to the divisional event. In Stock Eliminator, Jeff Taylor lost in round four at St. Louis. That means... To use your term, Big Jed, he is mathematically ineligible. He will not be the 2018 Stock Eliminator World Champion. I think if I'm doing my quick math right, and it was just quick math, I believe Thomas Fletcher and Jeff Lopez still have mathematical shots. But realistically, this thing's either going to be Brian McClanahan or Justin Lamb. Uh, McClanahan without question in the driver's seat, similar to Don Nichols' position in Supercomp. He can still earn points at all three remaining events out West, and he could lock out Justin with a fifth-round win at either national event, whether that be this weekend at Vegas or in two weeks at Pomona. If McClanahan fails to improve at all, Justin has to win fifth round of the divisional event, which is a tall order on command, but... Keep in mind, he is Justin Lamb, and he's done it before. Just to revisit the scenario that I laid out a couple weeks ago, the way that this has gone, like they're currently right now 690 to 689, which is a massive points total in NHRA competition. They, they're both deserving of this championship, and they've just thrown back and forth haymakers all year. So what I want to see happen, again, I mentioned this a couple episodes ago, I want McClanahan to not improve this week so that Justin still has a chance at the divisional. I want Justin to win the points meet. Put all the pressure back on on McClanahan. Justin's a hero for a week, and then McClanahan comes back and wins Pomona to win the whole thing. Like, that not that exciting. I've got a rooting interest either way, although I think McClanahan is team loop, so I guess I do have a rooting interest. But that yeah. would just be a fitting end to the season that these guys have had back and forth of just dominating Stock Eliminator. One last class or one last note, and this is in Top Sportsman, and this, I guess, is a non-note. Ronnie Proctor didn't go to Rockingham, didn't make the last Division Two event there. I'm not sure if that means he's done or if he's about to hit the road. Ronnie Proctor lives in West Virginia. The two remaining divisionals are Noble, Oklahoma this weekend, Vegas next week. I don't know what his I don't know what his plans are, but I did say a couple of weeks ago that the three contenders, that'd be Proctor, J.R. Loebner, and Doug Crumlich, would likely get their last claims at three different races. So it's kind of anticlimactic. Uh, I may have completely misspoken there. The, a little birdie told me that J.R. is headed west. And we'll be in Vegas. And now if Ronnie Proctor shows up there, what happens there? You know what I mean? Maybe they all converge on Las Vegas and this thing gets really entertaining. Producer Mark just said Proctor was at the PDRA finals, which makes sense. That would be why he missed Rockingham. But I don't know if he intends to make another division race to make that up or not. 
It should definitely be interesting. Some some races coming down to the last event or two, like always. So that is exciting for us to watch and look forward to more of your analysis and breakdown on that. Luke, real quick, before we get to the next segment, the IHRA Summit Super Series World Finals was held in Memphis, as we uh, talked about in What's on Tap last week. And in the top category, Dale Skates got the win over Dale Foss. An all-Dale final there. That's pretty rare. Uh, the mod category was Toby Daniels over Aaron Brock. And in the junior category, Kyla Fate is what I'm going to go with, F-E-I-T. I'm not real sure how you pronounce that. Over Chance Terman. So those were the IHRA Summit Super Series uh, World Finals champions. Uh, big deal there for them, and congratulations to all those winners. No doubt. I wanted to lead the show with all of that, Big Jed, because it all absolutely got overshadowed by the Mm. 23rd annual Million Dollar Race. It is, without question, for a lot of different reasons, which we'll do our best to dissect what everyone is talking about. This This week on What Everyone is Talking About. Hi, Luke. What everyone is talking about is truly this week what everyone is talking about. It, this is the most what everyone is talking about ever. Now, I looked on, I, I joked that I looked on Facebook and couldn't find anything, but obviously the million dollar race is dominating everybody's news feed and other social media outlets. So, you know, the question that, that I had is it the wildest million ever? And is it crazier than the track change year? I mean, we all take, you were there. We all think that was probably the craziest million ever, but this one could have surpassed it. Yeah, I I said immediately Sunday night that this was by far the most bizarre million that I'd ever been to. And I'd honestly kind of forgot about the Indita Muncie excursion until you brought it up. And I was there for all that. And that was, that was crazy. And then it just comes to mind, like when you bring together this many racers and when you got randy running the show to be completely honest like you just don't know what to expect you know what i mean like it's going to be exciting it's probably going to be different you may see things that you've never seen before i don't know how to quantify them like the the muncie thing was strange like i just remember waking up thursday morning and going damn i'm i'm in muncie indiana what what just happened? You know what I mean? But but once we got to racing, it was no big deal. It was just another race at a different racetrack. Everybody seemed to adapt. Like it, it went fine. I've never seen anything like what we witnessed Sunday. I doubt that I ever will again. And I'm still here, what are we, three days later as we record this, trying to piece it all together in my mind. What a wild, wild biggest event of the season. Yeah, obviously, uh, this race means so much to so many. Huge crowd in Montgomery, as it has been the past several years. There was some question there as to how the amount of racing available to the bracket racer right now would affect the car count at the million. I would say it was mild at best if there was an effect. Jed, you were at the epicenter of this. You were the eye in the sky. You were calling the action. For our listeners that maybe watched it all happen in real time because i think most of you probably did were there like i said earlier it's a lot to process just give us a a brief rundown of just play by play what actually happened in the million dollar race and then we'll come back and dissect it bit by bit and give our own opinions okay so obviously everybody knows luke that the weather came in saturday got things 
well behind schedule, and the decision was made to try to run Sunday's 25 on Saturday as much as possible and then see where we were at. Could we finish? Did we need to split? Whatever. Actually did really well. Got it through fourth round. Decided to finish the last, whatever, 35 cars or so in the time trial for the million on Sunday as the million was moved to a day by itself on Sunday. So wake up Sunday morning, the wind's blowing, it's rather cool. Things changed quite a bit. It was uh, quite a lot of change from my last pass went down the track on Saturday. As we've seen people doing big crazy wheelies and all kind of stuff that uh, where you were making more power. But throughout the day, it was pretty nice day. Got into nighttime, very cool temps. And then the track, you know, became... A little bit more challenging, but even that, Luke, it, it held up extremely well for the, the temperatures and the, the weather that they had been dealt. I'm sure you saw that as well. Yeah, I would agree. I, I will say that I was really impressed with the racetrack as it got colder. It was better than I expected, especially given not only the temperatures, but the downtime between rounds that is inherent to the million. Yeah, so as you speak of that, you know, as we start getting into late rounds, everybody knows there's quite a bit of meetings and gatherings with the racers, and they got down to 14 cars. Kenny Underwood's sitting on the bye, and, you know, Kenny's no dummy. He knows that there's 14, there won't be a bye, but he also knows at seven, there's going to be a bye, and if he wins at 14, he will have that bye to the semis. So he knows he's got the last bye there, which is the best one of the race, no matter where it falls. You get the last one, you got the best one. So Kenny is the last car in the lanes, and they approach him with some kind of discussion about a split, and he you know, basically says, no offense, but no thanks. I'm going to race right here at 14, and if I go out, I'll take what I get, and if I don't, I'm going to be in the semis, and then we can talk then. So the sixth pair of the round had Corey Gulitti and uh, Slade Cummings. And we all know what happened there. Obviously, Corey uh, got a little aggressive on the brake pedal in the right lane. The track was not slick, but it definitely was not optimal due to the weather and the conditions. And it got away from Corey. And he had what looked like a terrible wreck, but fortunately was able to come out of it with, uh, with no serious injuries. Maybe just a little bit sore the next day. So... Million Dollar Rule adopted this many years ago, where if you break your car, basically how the rule reads, if you break with race directors or, or Randy's approval, you will be allowed to switch cars, but they have to approve it. Corey didn't necessarily break, but he did get an opportunity to take advantage of the rule and come back with another car. In the meantime, while that discussion is being made, Kenny is the seventh pair of the round, he runs his round and gets a win light, so he knows he's going to the semis. Uh, so obviously at seven, there will be no more discussion with him because he's made it clear I wouldn't do it at 14. I've got to buy at seven. I'll talk to you in the semis. So Corey gets the opportunity to come back and race in the quarterfinals. He draws Scotty, and Scotty had been driving really well the entire day, uh, really Corey gets out of a car going 470s that he crashed, gets in his dad's car going 440s, and hasn't been down the racetrack in the car, really kind of guessing a little bit at everything, the box, the dial, the whole deal. So, you know, no offense to Corey, but I'm I'm obviously expecting Scotty to to adjust here and turn on the wind light. 
very unlikely Scotty gets a little too much at the stripe, breaks it out a few thou. Corey lifts, does not apply the brake pedal very hard, and goes for above the dial. So Corey goes to the semis. He wins in the semis. And then obviously the final round, the epic final round between a former million-dollar winner and the youngest million-dollar finalist ever. And Kenny Underwood ends the storybook uh, ending or, or ruins the storybook ending for Corey Galitti and takes his second ever million dollar win. So hopefully I didn't uh, lose anybody in that, but I tried to just break it down kind of as it was happening. But it was the wildest two to three rounds that I can ever remember calling in any race, much less just, you know, it being the million. Sure. I have never been a part of a situation that remotely resembles that, much less for those stakes. And Jed, Galitti's situation and that story, obviously that is the story and we'll talk a lot about it. It completely overshadowed what otherwise would have been any myriad of incredible storylines. To some extent, this whole deal has overshadowed Kenny's win and that's Underwood's second million. He joins last week's guest, Gary Williams, as the only two-time winners of this event. And basically just puts the icing on the cake of what may very well be the best season in bracket racing history. What Kenny Underwood has done this year is unbelievable. It's definitely, I I think without question, the most lucrative season in bracket racing history, just due to the elevated purses all the way around this season and Underwood's dominance. And again, I think you could make the argument, it's the best year anybody's ever had bracket racing, capped off by a win at the most prestigious event on the circuit. Also, you mentioned Corey Galitti winning the semifinal round. Who he beat in the semifinal round? Randall Reed. Yeah, that Randall Reed that won the Spring Fling Union in Vegas. <laughs> yeah. was, it was it got real close to, to pulling a verdi. And to be completely honest, not that I would ever root against Randall Reed. Like, I like a good story. But if Jeff Verdi wins both millions in 2016 and Randall Reed wins both millions in 2018... Wouldn't I feel like a dick? Right? I'm the one guy that couldn't do it. Like I've never even been close to winning the, the, the Montgomery Million. I didn't think you were really going to say it. Yeah. So, I mean, whatever. I'm not – Randall, don't take that the wrong way. Like, I ain't glad you lost. But, man, I, part of me just breathed a – whew, all right. But that would have been a heck of a story, right? And then you've got the other semifinalist is a guy named Chuck Flanagan. Who's Chuck Flanagan? I Don't take that the wrong way. I know who Chuck Flanagan is. But he's a, a little-known racer out of Ohio in a 680-door car. That in itself is a cool story, right? How many 680-door cars you see at four in the million? And it was all on the table to be had. Plus, you mentioned Scotty. Like, that's Scotty's unicorn accomplishment. Like, the only race that he hasn't won is the million dollars. He's been runner-up. He runner-up the millennium million. You know it's on the bucket list. And if it ever set up perfectly— Scotty's down to seven cars. It's 40 degrees outside. He's in a truck that I don't think spins in the water. No. Right? I mean, he's in the perfect setup. And then as the ladder falls out, he draws the kid that just barrel rolled six times and has to swap cars. Like, it lines up perfectly. You think this is the year Scotty's going to get it done. And then it all just, the rug got pulled out from under him. Where do we start? Because there's so much to get into here. That's a really good question. I mean, it it is so wild and such a a crazy story. There's, you know, I don't really know where you start, Luke. A lot of scuttlebutt after this, right? After the 
the round of 14 when Corey Gilletti crashed, should he have been disqualified? Obviously, he was not. And I guess the way that you dissect that, the, the, the normal disqualification would be excessive braking, I suppose, right? Although I've never seen that enforced at the million dollar race, never seen it enforced really at any big bracket race that I can think of. But to that point, was excessive braking the cause of the accident? Yeah, like that much is yes. pretty obvious to anyone that was watching. And Corey has said so him said as much himself. I assume that he'll say the same later in the show when we have him on. Now, the technical rules, like the NHRA ruling for excessive braking, I pulled up the rule book just because there was a lot of misinformation going around at the racetrack as to what are the rules in this instance. Because there were a lot of people saying, if you hit the wall past the finish line, you're fine. If you cross a boundary past the finish line, you're fine. That's not actually the case per NHRA rules. Okay, The NHRA rulebook states this is section two, page nine. And again, this isn't an NHRA event. So take this for what it's worth, but this is the NHRA rule. Anytime it has been judged that excessive braking has resulted in loss of control, that results in contact with the guardrail and or light fixtures or crossing the center boundary lines, including past the finish line, including past the finish line is in all caps, the contestant will be disqualified. Now, and I personally, we've discussed this before on the podcast. I have an issue with trying to enforce any type of excessive braking rule in any way except this because any other way is very objective but if the rule is like if you crash you're out i'm fine with that idea and to be honest in looking at the playback of the live feed i'm not sure cory galetti ever hit the wall like it was the wildest crash you ever seen because like he hit the brakes hit turn left and just started barrel rolling like right down the middle of the racetrack i injury even got into a wall but he obviously crossed the center line now i just read the NHRA rule book, but let's be very clear here. Randy Folk, the promoter of the million dollar race, doesn't have to abide by NHRA rules or IHRA rules. Like there's there's no NHRA or IHRA rule that allows a driver to swap cars in the middle of the race. And yet, as you explained, the million has allowed that and welcomed that for years. And it's not like this was a one-time decision in in the folks' defense. There was precedent here just a day prior, two days prior, I guess. Diane Duval crashed at the finish line. Not really a similar incident, but a similar result. Barrel rolling a dragster a couple of days prior in the process of winning her round. And her opponent wasn't reinstated. She wasn't disqualified for excessive braking. Now, she didn't make it back. She didn't swap cars. I don't know that she was in a position health-wise to do so. Uh, I think she had some back issues. But the opportunity was there. Had she wanted to get in another car for second round, similar to what Corey Galitti did in the million. So take that for what it's worth. And <laughs> we could do so many different ways with this, Jed, but I'll give you my take for whatever it's worth. Was this an accident caused by excessive braking? I think that's the dumbest question I've ever heard. Yes. Right? Sure. Did Corey drive too aggressively? In general, and then especially given the, the conditions, the coldness of the racetrack, which I say, again, was very good, but it's not a track you want to go sliding through at 150 miles an hour. Yes, Corey drove too aggressively. Did Corey put himself and Slate Cummings in harm's way unnecessarily? Yes. I think you have a hard time arguing otherwise. Should Corey have been disqualified? In most events, let's be completely clear, in almost any other event, he would have been. And... 
in just about any other event, he wouldn't have been able to continue anyway. Again, the million has a very unique rule that allows you to swap cars in the event of breakage is what the, the rule is intended for, but obviously it applied to this situation. Had the decision been made to disqualify him, I'd have been fine with that. In fact, personally, I don't know how you feel about this, Jed. Like, I'm not a huge fan of the million rule in general nor the ruling in this specific situation. I just, I feel like you should finish the race in the car that you started in. Just because not everyone has access or the opportunity to drive another car, for one thing. And it's just bizarre. You know what I mean? It's enough of a disadvantage to hop in a car that you've never drove or certainly not driven that day that you would think most people wouldn't be able to win anyway. But it's just an odd rule, in my opinion. But as a whole, this is just kind of like another example that reinforces this narrative that seems to be growing around this event in particular, and I guess to some extent, big dollar bracket racing in general, but specifically this event as it kind of being the wild, wild west, so to speak. And that's a culture, like you can't blame all of this on the folks. That's a culture that was established before Randy took this over, right? It's a culture that was reaffirmed years ago with what we talked about when the race was moved from Indy to Muncie, because again, the cause of that move was basically that the racers refused or were unable to abide by safety rules put forth by NHRA at an NHRA-owned facility at Indy. There was more to it than that, but that's essentially what it boiled down to. At the million, there's essentially no safety enforcement, right? Very little. There's essentially no tech besides spot checks. And to be fair to the million, that's not exclusive to this event. Like They probably do as much to prevent cheating as anyone. And I've been on record saying that I don't think that this is a problem. I think especially at that level, the racers tend to police each other. But there is like no tech going into the race. And the only quote-unquote rules are rules like this, while well-intentioned, that essentially promote winning at all costs. And this is the way that these races are generally run. This is the way that this specific event has always been run. It is the culture of largely big money bracket racing, but certainly the million dollar race. And I guess my only quote to that would be that I'm personally less a fan of that than I used to be. I would like to see more structure in events of these natures, but I understand it. Like I did come up racing in this culture. So it's not Like, I don't freak out when I see somebody going 480s in sweatpants. Like, I don't love it, but it's something I've seen all my life. So I understand the thought process behind, like, not turning away racers and letting each racer kind of fend for themselves, do their own thing. I just don't necessarily agree with it. And I'm not sure in this day and age that I'm the only one. It seems like there's a growing population that just says, this is a little out of hand. Back to this specific situation, Jed. Yep. Uh, Rigoletti a wreck waiting for a place to happen. Like it was kind of documented. And in fact, his, his father told me that he and another couple of racers had come to her, to Corey earlier in this event and said, man, if you keep driving like that, you're going to crash. You know what I mean? Like it was lock up the brakes at the finish line, several rounds in a row. And it's been going on for a couple of months. And in essence, like, I don't want to say that the rules in place rewarded Corey for crashing, but they certainly didn't penalize him. And I kind of take issue with that. And in saying all of that, knowing Corey, and I wouldn't say that we're real close, but he seems like a really good kid. And I think that he's learned his lesson. Again, he'll be on with us. He can tell us for himself. But in general, this rule or this interpretation of a rule that I don't think was necessarily meant for this situation, it didn't penalize him at all. 
the way that Corey handled it is fine. It's the way any of us would handle it, I think. But I don't like the rule in general. That said, the rules are what the rules are. And given the rules of this event, that you are able to swap cars should your car break or, in this case, be destroyed, I'm okay with the idea that he was able to continue on in the event in another car, assuming, of course, that he was physically able to do so. And in fact, this isn't kind of an odd take, and I may completely be in the minority, but if I'm Slate Cummings in that situation, and the powers that be came to me and said, okay, Corey's wind light was on, but he's disqualified and you're back in the race, I wouldn't let them put me back into the race. Like, if they want to disqualify Corey, that's fine. There'll be six cars next round. I lost. Regardless of the stakes, I don't think that I could feel right going up for the next round. That could beat me. Yeah. I don't know. Slate would say the same thing, but that, that's how I would feel in that situation. I want to speak for him. To those of you who say it was reckless and Corey Gallardi deserves to pay the price for putting another racer at risk, it's hard to disagree with that. Like it, it was reckless. It is reckless. It's not smart racing. It's something that Corey, I, I really have no doubt, will learn from. And thankfully for everybody involved, it wasn't worse than it was. It certainly could have been for a variety of reasons. The last thing that I want to do, especially publicly in a platform like we have here, Jed, is to glorify that style of driving. It's not the way to do it. I can say that now. I'm 37 years old. I've been doing this for 25 years. But I'll also admit that at Corey's age, I drove the same way. That doesn't make it right. It doesn't make me right. It doesn't, make, doesn't justify his actions. But what I'm trying to explain is that the reason that I now know better what I can or can't do in a race car is because I pushed the envelope and like Corey, I crashed. That's not to say that I'll never crash again. You know, like that I got it all under control. Gary Stinnett had a great quote I'd heard years ago that was something to the effect of there are two types of racers out there, those that have crashed and those that will, or those that haven't yet. It's, if you do this long enough, it's almost inevitable that at some point you're going to find yourself in the wrong place at the wrong time. Now, do I love the idea, Jed? And I know I'm rambling forever, but there's so much to unpack here. Yeah, there's a lot. Do I love the idea that Corey Gallitti or, or any other racer for that matter? I mean, obviously, we're singling him out here. Do I love the idea that someone in the other lane could lock up the brakes beside me? No, no, I don't. Would I encourage Corey or any other racer to race more cautiously? And let me make it clear that you can have the same effect in terms of changing momentum, in terms of confusing your opponent, in terms of, quote-unquote, dropping them on their head, in a much more controlled manner? Hell yeah, I'd say that. That's actually like a huge point of emphasis on ThisIsBracketRacing.com and within This Is Bracket Racing Elite. But with all that said, this is part of our game. This is part of our sport. As long as the rules dictate that we can go too fast and lose the race, well, racers are going to slow down prior to reaching the finish line. You cannot legislate that out of our game. And trying to police it, again, in any other way than saying, if you hit something, you're out, which in this case wasn't even you know, the, the case. Any other manner can't be done objectively. So we have to live with it being a danger of the game. Corey Galitti or, or anyone locking up the brakes and coming into the opposite lane is no different than Corey Gallitti or anyone blowing off a cooling line, spinning out, and coming into the opposite lane. It's a risk that we all take when we enter the race, when we go to the racetrack. All that we can do, Jed, is encourage racers to drive within reason, to not glorify the end result that Corey enjoyed here 
but to diminish the action and say, look, that's not the way to do it, and that's what's subject to happen. I'm not sure that we all realize where that line is, unfortunately, until we've crossed it. Uh, no doubt. Very well said, Luke. And, you know, I've obviously been approached about this through messages or even in person by many people since the incident happened. And, you know, I, I don't – should a 17-year-old go 440s? Should a, should a 17-year-old be able to go 470s? You know, we have these limits on speed for these youngsters as they're coming up for their age groups. You know, does that need to be extended Corey just, he's a great kid, just hasn't seen all of the conditions and all of the scenarios that he needed to see to, to drive the way he needed to, the way he drove in that particular round. It probably just was a lack of preparation. You know, it, you only get so much of that at 17 after you've been driving for a year and a half or so in the big cars. But I guess my biggest issue with it all is, are we doing too much? At such an early age, uh, you know, there's not a limit. Had he been in one of the pro charge cars at 17 going 415 like Brian Lampton, you know, just can he do it? Is it okay? Are we prepared for that? So, you know, I think some of those things need to be looked at possibly. And just like your last statement, when Corey drops somebody on their head at 17 and gets out of his car is everyone coming over and high-fiving him and telling him how awesome that was? Or is there a leader in the group that says, hey, man, you know, be careful out there. This, this can be done a different way. You know, congrats on the win, but let's make sure we're, we're doing this the right way. So you know, I would like to see some leadership uh, around all of the young kids, not just Corey, and make sure that we're, we're leading them in the right direction. Yeah, I would tend to agree. I, I think the the issue, to the extent that it is an issue, is a is a culture that we've created a little bit around the sport that that's like the cool way to drive. That's a problem. Now, yep. to your point, as far as fixing it with with age restrictions and limits, I don't know. Like if Corey's dialed five twenty there, I think the same thing happens. You know what I mean? I don't know that you necessarily legislate that out of it, but the culture in general, and I don't. <laughs> I don't know how you fix that on a on a on a wide ranging scale, but I do agree that's a problem. It was a problem when I was a kid. You know, I mean, I told you that's the way that I learned how to race yeah. um, because it was the way that the winning racers of that generation in my area that's the way they drove. So that's the way those of us coming up learned to drive, and we kind of figured out these some in some cases the hard way where those limits were and adjusted and. and and corrected course from there. Jed, we're both fathers. You've got a little bit more experience at it than I do. Put yourself, we, we talked about Corey to this point, put yourself in Chris Galitti's shoes. This was a question actually um, KB brought up to me as we were sitting on the wall after the crash. If this is your kid, are you sending him back out there for round seven? Well, easy for me to say how I would handle it until it really happened to me. You know, I, when I think of JJ, I couldn't do it because I know he's somewhat timid in the car and, you know, he hasn't raced his junior just because it's been something that it put a lot of fear in him. So, yeah, I would assume a crash of any kind would, I wouldn't have to make the choice. He'd probably tell me he ain't ever getting back in it. But, I, 
you know, my son at, at where he's at, I couldn't imagine putting him back out there. But, you know, Corey obviously has shown the ability to handle race cars uh, at a high level. Uh, so, you know, I, if JJ performed like Corey does on the racetrack and was already out of the car and telling everyone that would listen, hey, I, I made a mistake here. I, I hit the brakes too hard and it got away from me and I'm okay. And then they had a, they actually had what a lot of people don't even realize. Jim Howard called an outside medic to come to the racetrack and check him out. This wasn't one of those racetrack checks and tap him on the shoulder and say he's okay. I mean, he, he went through a real check. So I'm confident that he was fine to go back out on the racetrack. So, you know, JJ performed like that and handled a race car like him. And he's down to the quarterfinals of the million. He says he's okay. And he's told me what mistakes he made and went through the whole deal. Yeah. I mean, I don't fault Chris for putting him back out there, but I imagine it'd be a very difficult decision. Yeah, I can only imagine everything that's running through his mind in those moments. Because this all happens. This is in the course of, what, a half hour? You know, from the high of watching that wind light come on, knowing that your son's to seven in the million, to the immediate, oh my God, he's rolling down the racetrack at 150 mile an hour, to less than 30 minutes later, he's strapping into another car for the next round. Like, that's that's a, that's a lot to try to process in a short period of time. I'll tell you, Jed, the way that I would handle it, and and I, the way that I'd like to think that I would handle it again, it's difficult to say until you're in those shoes, but I actually articulated this to Corey in the moment. I wanted to make sure that I wasn't out of place at the time because I, I won't claim to know him all that well, but the word had gotten to me that he has the opportunity, they're going to give him the opportunity to go back into the race if he wishes to drive another car, and that there was some hesitation on his part. He's rightfully spooked. You know what I mean? Like, what just happened? I don't know that I want to get back in a car, much less, you know, 30 minutes after what just happened. And I went down and, sa- and just asked him, Corey, are you okay, first off? Yeah, I, I think so. And uh, we talked a little bit, and I said, well, what are you going to do next? And uh, he said, well, I think, I, I guess I'm going to get in this car and try to win this race. And I said, well, that's what I came down here to hear Because what I was going to tell you is that, assuming you're fine physically, right now, at his stage in his career, this stuff seems real easy, Jed. Like, he's been dominant. We've talked about him a lot on the podcast. He's won, he's had an incredible season for a man of any age, much less his. He was at the split, I believe, in last year in the million, he was 16. Um, Here he is down to seven again. And I just told him, look, I've been coming here for 20 years. And I've been to seven cars, the situation that you're in right now, once. I know this seems easy, but it's not a given that you'll ever be in this position again and have this opportunity. And I know what this race means to me. And I know you're younger, like I assume, if not today, someday would lean to you. If you're physically able and you feel comfortable getting back in a car, comfortable is a relative term there. I think you should go race because I fear that if you don't, Somewhere down the road, you'll regret not at least giving it a shot and taking that opportunity. And I think that that's similar to the line of thinking that his father, Chris, had. And I would like to think similar to the line of thinking that I would have if I was in that situation. Yeah, and I saw on DragRaceResults.com where Chris said the plan was actually for Corey to go out there, make a burnout, and stage the car to make sure we were relevant and whatever was going to be done with 
the money. And if you feel comfortable after that point, son, go race. Do not touch the brake pedal at the finish line, no matter what. Your head behind, basically, he didn't say it verbatim, but basically was making it clear that the brake pedal was not to be touched. If you do feel like you want to kill something, you lift and lift only. And Corey, he said when Corey did the 200-foot burnout, he knew he was ready to race. And obviously got by Scotty. Scotty didn't perform like Scotty normally performs, and that allowed Corey to advance. But So they had a plan a little different than just going back out and racing, and it ended up him going back out and racing. Sure. Let's get back to some of the behind-the-scenes decisions from the powers that be at the Million Dollar Race. That obviously was a huge call. Well, what are you going to do in this Corey DeLitty situation? And it was probably the last or one of the last of several difficult, maybe perplexing, decisions from the event promoters. Jed, you were there. You were. You got to see more behind-the-scenes probably than anyone, so feel free to interject what you want. The decision Saturday afternoon to um, postpone the million till Sunday to run the $25,000 race. Sunday is originally scheduled for Sunday as much of it as we could Saturday evening with the plan then to either split the money or finish it Sunday morning, whatever the case may be. Again, you're privy to the decision more than I. Lots of factors go into this. But take us through just a quick walk through the, the situation as it went down. Well, yeah, it was a very difficult decision. Jenny, Randy, Jason, uh, they actually rounded me up and just for some more input from someone that is spending time in the lanes as well as on the staff. So, you know, I obviously not braggadocious, but I offer a little different perspective having sat on both sides of it at the event. So, The mission, obviously, is to complete the million-dollar race, no matter what. That has to happen. It's what everybody's there for. It's what, uh, obviously, financially, what is the most beneficial to folk promotions. So, got to figure out how you get that done. And, you know, for one reason or another, Randy is very adamant about the million standing on its own and running its own race on its own day, not mixing and, and mingling with any other of the the racing scheduled for million-dollar week. So obviously it, got, it started getting in the early afternoon, didn't see any way. It looked like the, the million itself would be because there's a buyback. So you start, you know, the thought was, well, there's only going to be half the cars in the million that there is in the other races. But there is a buyback in the million, which... And a time trial. Yeah, and a time trial, which essentially just evens the score. I mean, it's basically about the same length. So the question was, how far can we get in the million? Then what do we do on Sunday? Do we try to keep these things running together? Can you finish it all? So if you're going to have to cut one short, it was obviously a wise decision to make that the 25 grander. The 25 grander was going to be, uh, I don't know, 13-hour race, whatever it is, whatever it takes to run that number of cars. So the thought was we'll just run it as far as we can, maybe till 2 o'clock in the morning or till the track says you can't go down it any longer. And then we will see where we're at. Can we finish it in the time trial on Sunday or do we just have to split it right there? And obviously they got really well. They got four rounds of it run. 
all the way till I guess it was about two o'clock in the morning. And then they were left with 35 cars, I believe. And those 35 cars were able to finish within the time trial for the million on Sunday. So it, it worked out really well from a scheduling standpoint, but you know, when the million, when the million falls on Sunday, it just don't feel right. You know, it's it just, the whole thing felt weird uh, having it on Sunday. And as the million is starting to go rounds, that crowd not gathering like it normally does on Saturday night. And instead of that crowd gathering, there was motorhomes and trailers exiting the property very rapidly. So it, it was a tough call, a really tough call. But in my opinion, they did about all they could to make sure that they got all of the racing done. And, you know, it was very unfortunate how it ended up on Sunday night with all the drama. But the idea and the intent, I think, was directionally correct. And, I, you know, I think they made really good calls and ultimately got all the racing done, although it, it finished extremely late. Yeah, hindsight's always twenty twenty on these decisions, Jed. And and like you say, there's no I don't think there was any good decision, you know, any right decision that presented itself. And to your point, this went really smoothly and it looked brilliant until the point where we're running the last few rounds of the million and forty degrees. You know what I mean? That that to me, like again, a lot of stuff to unpack here and try to figure out in the race promoter shoes and I don't envy their position at all but I don't really understand the the steadfastness about not splitting the million over two days like I understand wanting it to be a standalone event but the time window was there to run whatever a couple three rounds in decent weather conditions and then finish the race in decent weather conditions, knowing that you're going to have a good racetrack, knowing that you're going to have a lot of downtime as the splits happen in the million. Trying to run it either way, like trying to run it all Saturday night, it was impossible. You know it was going to get cold. It was going to get really late. But trying to run it Sunday created a lot of the same issues. You know what I mean? As it got late in the race, it's 40 degrees. Yeah. And the casualty more than anything, and you brought it up, Jed, was the atmosphere, specifically in person. I don't know if it really seemed any different to those of you watching the live feed, but... I'm, we'd stayed in a motel, and we're driving into the track Sunday morning for the million, and I passed no less than a dozen rigs going the other way when it started. And what is so cool about the million is the atmosphere, to specifically to be there in person. You guys have seen it on the live feed if you haven't been there yourself. The late rounds of the million, you drive through the mob of people into the water box. I mean, it's like a scene straight out of Street Outlaws. And there are, what was it, 626 entrants in the Friday 25 Grand or at a regular million? There's 600 racers there watching. Like, everybody sticks around to see who's going to hoist the big check. And this year, everybody that, you know, half the field's gone because they didn't enter the million. And then it's getting so late. It's Sunday. Everybody's got to go to work the next day. As people lose, they're packing up and leaving. It's a ghost town to watch, you know, the, what may be the most epic finish in, it's certainly a million dollar race history, maybe in racing history. Like it was a crazy night and nobody was there to experience it. Like it was just, as you mentioned, the, the atmosphere itself was odd to say the least and different. 
And I think it also, you may have a better feel for this than I do. It definitely cost them entries into the million. I, I know just in our area, there was half a dozen racers or so that were planning to enter or had entered Saturday's million and for a variety of reasons could not stay to race Sunday or did not care to race to stay and race on Sunday. I don't mean to interrupt you, Luke. That was about 40. It, it was probably yeah. talking about 40 entries. They had 299. I believe the biggest million ever was 327 the second year that Gary Williams won. This 347. I, 347. Okay, so it wouldn't have been the biggest million ever, but it would have definitely been close had it been able to to finish on Saturday. Like I said, either option kind of sucks with you whatever however you try to break this up, which to me brings me to my that larger point and this is the only time that I'll even approach what could be considered a, as being critical of the folks or Montgomery Raceway Park. And to me the answer here is to take a page from Pete and Kyle's book and run the million on Friday just for flexibility's sake. Right. Even if like I, I like the the travel day Sunday, but even if you don't do that, even if you have a, a 25 grander Thursday, a 25 grander Saturday and a 25 grander scheduled for Sunday and try to get it all in, it's just easier to push one of those and flex things to where the million is always the priority. Right. That's what I'd like to see change going forward. And on a little bit bigger picture and please don't take this as a as a knock on Montgomery Raceway Park. The place is awesome. From a competition standpoint, it's nearly perfect. Like the track is, I've never been there where I thought the track wasn't amazing. And this was the, the prime opportunity for that. I mean, it's 40 degrees literally in the late rounds of the million. And I wasn't around real late, but fourth round, like I ran my fastest run of the weekend and it was late and it was cold. And there was, with little exception, cars getting down that racetrack with without issue when it's 40 degrees and it's been sitting for half an hour between rounds so the track's great i've never questioned the timing system at montgomery i think the staff jim howard and his crew incredible it's just not a big enough facility to house 600 plus entrants in this day and age and to be completely fair to montgomery there's not many facilities that are but i believe that the event has outgrown that facility and I think that everything would go smoother if it was at a, a bigger, maybe a little bit more up-to-date in terms of pit area racetrack. And this is the one knock that I will have. I find it embarrassing that – I don't know if any of you guys saw the pictures. Like the track-drying equipment at the race of this magnitude consisted of two dudes with brooms on a golf cart. I mean, come on, this race, like it doesn't take much to do the math. This race profits several hundred thousand dollars on this event. Bring in a damn jet dryer. Like give us a chance to finish, right? Yeah. And what I was told was the division two jet dryer is normally there, but for whatever reason, I guess it was taken maybe to Rockingham. Rockingham, I'm sure. right? Yeah. So, so they got it and took it there in case of rain, but. If if the million or whatever event Montgomery doesn't have doesn't conflict with a Lucas Oil event or I guess a national in their area, then that's normally sitting in Montgomery. But yeah, it was definitely didn't have as much equipment as we needed to get that track dry as quickly as possible. But I will say, given what they had to work with, those guys did a phenomenal job. Um, oh, yeah. I'm not questioning that at all. Nah, I just yeah. Between the schedule, the way that it was laid out, and the equipment available, there was just no flexibility, and that made it harder on everybody. Yeah, it did. So 
like you know the car count was huge 626 on friday 299 in the million i believe the other two days had about 580 ish each day so monster monster crowd and like you said that with the size of today's rigs and everything involved in what we take to the racetrack it is hard to find a facility with enough room for that. My goodness, what a crowd. Yeah, I mean, let's let's make one thing clear. Montgomery Raceway Park is a big place. Yes. That gets real small when you get 600-plus cars, as most facilities would. I mean, it is it is a massive undertaking to host a race like that. Big Jed, yeah, and, up, I don't want to drag this out any longer, but just think had there been, with the, the cooler temperatures, just think had there been rain two or three days prior Mm-hmm. to the million what kind of challenges that would have presented with sure. everyone that with all the rigs that have to park in uh, grass or dirt as a that could have been really bad yeah but, and what's crazy to me about the numbers the the 620 626 cars which is a lot of race cars i don't know if you noticed Ted, like there was a lot of racers that typically don't miss the million that they weren't there when you think about this, and, and as a race promoter, I know you've thought about this because like we get a lot of turnover at the little race that we put on. Whatever happens and what keeps it from happening, what if everybody converged on it at the same year? Because obviously you had probably 100 entrants this year that had never been there before. And I'm probably. thinking like Nick Hastings wasn't there. Tommy Plot wasn't there. That was my pick to win. He didn't even show up, right? Ron Lane, former winner, wasn't there. Jeff Strickland wasn't there. Like You could go down the list of people that you would pick to win the million that weren't even in attendance. And you could easily come up with a hundred names that weren't there that yeah. would typically be there. Edmund. What happens if everybody shows up at the same time and then there's 800 entries, you know? Yeah. Yeah. If you get the perfect storm, it, it could really be ugly. It, it just it physically couldn't hold another 30 rigs. And that would be everybody on top of each other. Just, it was, it was packed. Right. One last thing before we uh, before we kind of close this out, and we get Kenny and Corey on because I know a lot of you probably fast forwarded through this point. Like, let's talk. Let's get enough of this gas bag, and let's hear from the guys that actually did it. But one last thing that I wanted to touch on: there was a lot made of the the split, and you mentioned it earlier the the split or the lack thereof, probably more appropriate. It really wasn't that different in the end from quote unquote normal and i won't give numbers because a i wasn't a part of it i don't know the numbers i just know what i've been told and b it's not really any of my business and certainly not anyone else's but it's been documented that there was not a field-wide split at 14 cars which is historically the round that this race or gets cut up you know it's 16 cars or less so in the end kenny underwood got a little bit more money than the winner would quote unquote typically get at the million dollar race. He leveraged his position on the buy run, which I don't have any problem with. And to be completely honest, when you sit down and think this through from Kenny's perspective, dude's got stones, man. Stones, Jed. Oh yeah. He staged yeah. up at with fourteen cars remaining. It's three thousand dollars to lose that round. Okay. Kenny says, no deal, right? So it's $3,000 to lose that round if he loses. There was plenty of racers that made side deals at that point. Obviously, Kenny is not one of them. He refused to split. He knows that if his win light comes on, that's the buy run at seven, and you're going to be at four cars left in the million-dollar race with an uncut purse of 
what is that, $345,000 in the pot? Yeah, so in the semis, yeah. You would assume then at the semis, minimally, you're going to get $50,000 to lose, depending on how that, let's just say, like how that's cut up. So you got one round staging up for one win light that is worth $47,000 or more, as it ended up being, at least the way that I understood it, more. That's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, obviously, ultimate confidence in yourself, and then you make that decision. You pull out there, and the, the guy in front of you crashes, and you got another hour just to sit in a water box area, yes, hanging out, and and people are now talking to you as you're sitting there and about to pull out and go out and race. It was it was like you said, you used the perfect word, bizarre. I can't imagine even someone of Kenny Underwood's stature and experience. I can't imagine that he's ever staged it up for one round with as much money on the line as that round of 14. You know, win or lose, yeah. between winning and losing that round, the difference being probably in excess of $50,000. But the way that this went down the split at seven cars, as you alluded to earlier, Kenny's got the buy. So obviously there's no field wide deal, but it is my understanding that what Kenny did at that point was agree to set the purse going forward, meaning that they established what the semifinalists, the runner-up, and the winner would get. Well, that doesn't sound like a big deal, but what it did was allow the other six cars, the other three pairings in that quarterfinal round, to know what was on the table going forward. So they could make deals amongst themselves. And it's my understanding that all of them did. So as this ends up, in the end, when all that smoke clears... Kenny got a little bit more to win than the winner would, again, quote-unquote, typically get. And maybe half of the losers at the round of 14 got less than they would have typically gotten. Because really what it boiled down to is most of the the matchups at 14 made some sort of deal amongst themselves, 10% deal, whatever the case may be. So if you were unlucky or unfortunate to lose, not only to lose at 14 cars— but to have the opponent that knocked you out of the race then lose at seven, you probably didn't make much money. But if that opponent advanced to the final, you probably got paid too. So in yep. the end, everybody except Kenny and maybe half of those losers at 14 ended up getting about what they would normally get from a quote-unquote typical split at the million. It was a really overblown deal that, yes, it affected three or four people in a, in a negative manner, but... It's not like they rolled up and ran for two hundred seventy-five grand to win and fifty grand runner-up, and that was it, you know. Yeah, and and from what I was told, Luke, I think you're dead on with. Um, it was really very similar numbers to what we typically see in the million. Just Kenny had control of it. That's about the only thing that changed. Yeah, he had the leverage and and yeah. took advantage of the leverage, right? Yeah. So right, there were other races at the million. Believe it or not, we were there for. A week, right? Yeah. Uh, quickly, what else happened in Montgomery, Big Jed? Yeah, so Thursday we started out with a 570-ish car field, and a couple of our buddies, Adam Davis, got the win over Nick Ross. Adam, uh, obviously most well-known for his foot-breaking talents. He's won just about everything you can win on the bottom. But he does hit the top two and, and showed that he's very capable getting a win over a guy that you've squared up with in a 50 grand final before. So Nick Ross, another very young uh, talent, uh, just a guy that's on the, on the up. He's going to get in the middle of a lot of these as he moves forward. But uh, good to see our buddies 
start out the week with big uh, final round on Friday. Uh, Alan Wickle, another guy, no stranger to the winter circle, took his 430 car, and we talked about track conditions, Luke. It got a little cool on Friday night as well, and uh, Alan was dialed 436, 435, whatever he was dialed, and uh, his car was holding firm the whole time. He got the win over Canadian Jamie Bridge, Jamie coming down from Canada every year from Ontario and uh, always competes well. So good to see Jamie make a final round there on such a big stage. And then, uh, quote-unquote, Sunday's 25K, which started on Saturday and ended during the time trial on Sunday, was um, was an all-just cool dude, great guy final. Tom Dauber, the Red Rocket from New York, been doing it a long, long time, uh, got the win over our buddy Double J, Jeremy Jensen, just a couple of guys that are extremely well-liked in the pits by everybody that they encounter. And the old guy, no offense, Tom, lays him down one total loop. He was triple zero dead one in the interview, which was extremely special because Tom was, got a little emotional, obviously had a birthday or two and come out and competing on a stage like that at such a high level, had to feel really good. And he admitted that he put one thou in, in the staging lanes and was perfect dead one, which Jeremy had just done that to Josh Baker a few rounds prior. I know you saw that. I was going to say somewhere sometime when that wind light came on and then you announced that Tom Dauber had a one thou package somewhere. Josh Baker was saying, that's what you get. (laughs) (laughs) Baker was three total. I think at the round of 16, Jensen laid him down one total. So I guess um, tit for tat there, but Really good showing there by Tom. He he drove well all day. He didn't just put a good run down in the final. So, again, a guy that I like a lot. And Double J, obviously, we like a lot. So those were the other winners at the Million, Luke. And uh, that was big stories. But we uh, we need to take a break here and, and take care of some bills. And we'll come back and talk about big stories with our BTE, Who's Hot. I want to thank everybody for tuning in. To make sure that you're the first to know when next week's episode is available, subscribe. And you can do that on Google Play. You can do that on iTunes. You can do that wherever you are accessing our show today. Just subscribe. That way that you know that you have got the latest edition of the podcast. You'll be the first to know. And do us a favor. Tell your friends about the podcast. Get your track involved by broadcasting portions of the Sportsman Drag Racing podcast over the PA on race day. Would you be interested in a weekly email that provided not only an update on this podcast, what's included in this week's show, upcoming guests, etc., but also some tidbits from my little personal crazy world? These morsels could include updates from a race team, but also motivational and or thought-provoking quotes, notes on various random things that caught my attention, whether it be books or blogs that I'm reading, films, shows, documentaries that I'm watching, material that I'm writing or upcoming races that got me all fired up. I provide these in a brief, and I mean brief, 1,000 word max, weekly message that I call the 8th Mile Email. To have the 8th Mile Email delivered to your inbox every Wednesday, no charge, this is completely free, simply visit thisisbracketracing.com and sign up under the 8th Mile Email link. It's on the right side of the homepage. Guys, let's talk about the Great American Bracket Race. I want to introduce the new date for the 10th annual Mosier Engineering $50,000 
Great American Bracket Race, and the second annual Scoggin Dickey Parts Center Race Shop All-State Challenge. Oh, I messed that up. It's Performance Center, ain't it? All right, guys, let's talk about the Great American Bracket Race. I want to introduce the new date for the 10th annual Moser Engineering $50,000 Great American Bracket Race and the second annual SDPC Race Shop All-State Challenge. Well, our friends at Scoggin Dickey helping put that on. That date is going to be November the 16th through the 18th. It's at Memphis International Raceway, obviously in Memphis, Tennessee. Now, with the rescheduled date, the event changes include the All-State Challenge now beginning on Friday, which is going to make it a little easier for those All-State Challenge competitors to come in and represent their state and see who has the, the most talented racers in, in your state. There's uh, also been a $5,000 no-box slash footbrake class added for Saturday and Sunday. So you bottom bulbers, you got a place to go November 16th through the 18th there at Memphis and you get to compete for five grand, no less. So that's a nice change in addition to the program. And uh, the Great American Bracket Race itself will still be the same $10,000 on Friday and Sunday with $50,000 going to the Saturday winner that you're familiar with and also feature the American Dragster Shootout that Luke puts on. You can catch up with him for more information on that. He's on fire! It's time for Who's Hot in Sportsman Drag Racing. BTE is one of a few full-service transmission companies with a full array of manufacturing and testing capabilities. Their in-house CNC facility is paired with an extensive collection of gear, hobbing, and shaping machines to produce any high-performance driveline product. From inception, BTE's racing products are designed, prototyped, field-tested, produced, inspected, and even shipped by real racers. Just outside of Memphis, Tennessee, their warehouse and manufacturing facility in Mount Pleasant, Mississippi, is stocked with thousands of parts and centrally located in the United States for fast delivery anywhere. Luke, this is probably the worst-kept secret in podcast history, but our BTE Who's Hot driver this week is none other than the now two-time million-dollar race winner, Kenny Underwood. It was uh, Kenny just with another great performance this weekend, and... It's, like you said earlier, it may be the best performance that we've seen in a year span. Yeah, shocker that we're going Kenny's direction here. BTU's hot this week, and this is actually a discussion that we had on This Is Bracket Race and Elite earlier this week. Not that that's probably the platform for the discussion. It's probably here on the podcast. Kenny may be enjoying, this may be the icing on the cake for what, could very well be the greatest single season in bracket racing history. Almost uh, undoubtedly the most lucrative season in bracket racing history, given the elevated purses and his success throughout the weekend, uh, throughout the season, I should say. So this week's Who's Hot, probably a deserving winner of the Who's Hot Award at several points this season. I believe we've given yeah. it to him once. Kenny Underwood, and we are fortunate enough now to be joined by now two-time million dollar race winner just add that to the list of accolades that is a mile long kenny underwood welcome to the show buddy thanks for having me yeah kenny thanks for joining us tonight and again congratulations on putting your name 
in the record books again as a two-time now million-dollar race winner. Obviously, we talked about it at length, but Gary Williams, the only other driver to do that. I don't know. This seemed like a feel about it this year that, that a former winner could add their name to the list, but you never really know that's going to happen. And there were several of you guys that had an opportunity late in the rounds, but obviously right. you stepped up and got it done. So congrats, man. That was a heck of a performance. Well, thank you very, very much. So, Kenny, you, you've obviously now won it twice, which, <laughs> oddly enough, and I didn't talk about it in the winter circle because I didn't realize it at the time, you've won the $2 million races that were moved to Sunday since Folk Promotions has taken it over, which is very odd, but uh, it's just, it is what it is. You won it in 2013 when it was moved to Sunday. Obviously, you won it this past weekend, the same situation. How is this one different? from the first one in 2013? The first one, I was real nervous. I didn't get to soak it in. This one here, the whole time in the staging lanes from probably 28 cars down, I, I got to soak it in and enjoy it more. Mm. I, I knew what to expect. Not nervous at all. I wasn't nervous at all. I was just just excited to, to have a chance to do it again. You know, the first few rounds, you're thinking, you know, hopefully I get by a few and then get going. And once I got down to, like I said, like 28 cars, I'm like, this, this could really happen. It, it might happen again. Yeah, obviously, there was probably a calmness and a confidence that you had that helped you move forward into the winner's circle. But was there any different feeling to win it in a dragster versus when you won it in a door car? The win doesn't feel any different, but it was, I guess, a bigger win in the door car because no one had done it at the time. So it, you know, that, that was really special to show it could be done. And I think that helped. I think that helped a lot of people with confidence that they could do it too in a door car. Uh, up until that point, there was door car. You figured you didn't have a chance. So yeah. I, I yeah, think that the door car one was more exciting at least. Yeah. And especially that season, that's you and triplet in the final and all door car final. I'm almost certain that's the yeah. first time, maybe even the only time that that's happened at the million. I believe so. Yeah. Kenny, this year's million was the 23rd annual. Have you been to all of them? I have, yes. I, I was thinking that, and I was thinking you have to be one of very few that have made not missed one in 23 years. I'm not sure. It's me, Ricky Jones, and TJ Tracy have been to all of them, I believe. Really? In addition to the, the two wins now, I know that you've been close several times. I want to say this is going way back in my mind, because this is even before I was going. Were you the semis in the first one? I was, yes. Any other late finishes that come to mind throughout the, the years of the um, Memphis, I got down to six cars in my old small tire car. That's so right, the Rattler. Exciting. Yeah, and I think maybe I've been to the meeting a couple times. <laughs> the meeting's <laughs> always a good place to be. I, I tend to ask all of our our big winners when they come on the show something similar to this question because everybody tends to say after a big win that you got a lucky break somewhere along the way like everybody needs that one lucky break and while i agree with that i would also look at it from the other perspective in that typically when you win a race of any magnitude specifically something this big not only do you have a round where you kind of got away with one typically you have a round where your opponent made a run that would more often than not beat you and you just happen yep. to step up at the right time, you know, and kind of stand on your head the round that you needed to. Was there an example of either or both in your million? 
the lucky round was definitely at four cars. I got lucky on that. I missed the tree. Everything went wrong. He went under and I won. So that's, that was my lucky round in the semis, I believe. Take us through I it a little bit. Have won that. Where I was standing, like the, the lights behind the tree were blinding the stage bulbs, but somebody said that there was an odd staging sequence or something that may have messed with you there. No, not that I remember. No, all that was fine. Just a momentary lack of focus, lapse of focus, I should say. Yeah, it could be, yeah. <laughs> Obviously got away with it. Well, I didn't mean to interrupt. Let's take the other side of it, the round that you did good and had to. I don't know. I never really looked it over that way. The round that was out, it was it was $57,000 was at, at 14 cars. I have to win that round or I leave with 3000 If I win, I'm guaranteed 60 So... <laughs> That's pretty intense. <laughs> we just got done talking about that. That was a big one. <laughs> yeah, huge yeah, round. That's probably the, that's one of the biggest rounds I've had. And then we watched Galetti crash right in front of us. I'm in the water box when he wrecked. And so I had to sit there and think about it for another hour. And then <laughs> worry about now I walked out on the track and I've seen around the three thirty mark what the problem was. The the track was coming apart actually. You could see the concrete through the, you know, concrete patch. And Mm. I definitely felt it. I was from the earlier in the day to probably down to that many cars. I slowed down four or five hundreds. And I don't think it was because of the weather. The track was definitely from 330 on. It was a handful. Well, so obviously well documented that there was no split at 14 obviously there the racers talked and and made their deals amongst one another but there was no universal split between all 14 drivers i believe we understand why that happened obviously with you knowing that you were willing to gamble but explain your reasoning why you chose to handle it the way you did kenny i've just watched a lot of the other million dollar races get cut up in my opinion too much and this one here, it they lost some car count because from fr- or from Saturday to having a race on Saturday to Sunday, they lost some cars to the payout drop to I believe it was two seventy five when it could have been up to three forty. So there was less money to actually split up. And then a lot of times people leave there winning the race, winning less than a hundred grand. So I I wanted to try and make it so we had enough to at least the winner would get a hundred grand. And it just, it just worked out that way. I just wanted to make sure that there was more money at the end than there has been. That's a mission accomplished. Yeah, yeah. it was. Uh, and to the year I had helped in the decision. You know, if it was this late in the year and I hadn't won a dime, and you know how much these races cost every week. Your tab at the end of the weekend is large. So if I was behind, oh, yeah. I probably would have been looking for something to do at 14 cars. But I'm pretty much ahead for the year so i just gambled it and made sure that the payout stayed good and it should be some gambling going on in there i think at times and and obviously you showed that everyone can leave there with something worth being there for without the normal way of doing it which i thought was pretty cool but so obviously everybody everybody worked out good uh me and john siegel had a 10 percent deal I didn't even have to run him, but me and him are good friends. So we were down both at, you know, at that round. So I made a deal with him. So, and he lost that round. So it worked out for him. The 10% was pretty good. Yeah, it worked out really good for him. And he he had obviously two shots at 14 between him and Champ. So there was a, 
there was a lot of understories there going on, which was really cool to watch. And again, uh, some some former million dollar winners in the mix that could have won it. So, but obviously, big round there at fourteen. You're willing to gamble, mm-hmm. change the way the split was done. As you said, fifty-seven thousand dollars right there. You're in the water box. Corey crashes. You're down for an hour. I mean, what was going through your mind right there as you watch all that play out? First, I was concerned about him because I watched it happen right in front of me. And then I was pleased to hear he was okay. I was a little concerned about if they were going to let him continue on racing. I've been thrown out for excessive braking by Big Troy, who was working the stage lanes there. He wasn't the race director, but I thought he might have some influence on it. I've been thrown out for excessive braking. Gary Williams, who's Troy's son, he's been thrown out for, for it. And I was... In my mind, I'm like, they, they might not let him back in because of that. I wasn't sure, but Randy made the decision that it was okay for him to run, so everything was okay. Yeah, so you're, you're taking us right down the path we wanted to talk about. So what's your take on that, the, the crash and the decision not to disqualify Corey and then the decision to allow him to return to competition and obviously meet you in the final ultimately? It, it's hard to say. I think Randy Folk, as a promoter, made the right decision by letting him race. So it gave everybody something to talk about. It's, you know, it was big to him being back in the race where, you know, it, it, he probably would have got bad publicity if he said, you know, you can't race no more by, you know, how the internet is. They would have run their mouth forever. So if they would have told him he couldn't continue, I would not have been surprised. Sure. And- yeah, I agree. We've seen that in the past for sure. I think we mentioned this a little bit prior to recording, Kenny, on to happier subjects. Granted, Gary's the only other person that's won the million twice, so I guess you have the advantage of experience in this regard, but your post-race victory celebrations, second to none, Kenny. Like the, <laughs> I don't think anyone will ever outdo what you did in the Camaro, but for doing it, I mean, you limited options in a dragster, pretty good show you put on after after the final. <laughs> Yeah, I, I thought about that, too. As soon as my one light come on, I turned around. I'm heading back to the starting line. I'm like, what What can I do? What can I do? I'm in a dragster. There ain't much you can do, you know? So, I just high-fived everybody and got out of the car and gave Gary a big hug. <laughs> well, he had mentioned on the podcast a week ago that he's a little bit like rooting against anybody that's won it before when it gets late rounds. I assume, given your history, that wasn't an issue, but there had to be a part of Gary that still wanted to be the only one to do it twice. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm sure, but man, if he wins it a third time, I'll be as happy for him as this could be. So yeah. I think he'd be happy for me also. For sure. No, no doubt about it. Can we kind of led into this discussion and introduced you as possibly potentially in the midst or, or maybe that was the icing on the cake of what could easily be looked at as the greatest season, most successful season, almost certainly the most lucrative season in bracket racing history. I know in addition to being an excellent racer, you've been doing this for a long time. You're a bit of a racing historian. Any comment on that? I mean, I I think back to some of the years that Scotty had where he was just completely dominant. Peter Biondo, maybe a year or two more recently, probably in the last five, six years, it seemed like Labuse won everywhere that he went. Never for the stakes 
that that you've been able to achieve this year but can you like subject or objectively i guess put that into any kind of perspective and maybe not so much rank yourself but realize like how special what you've accomplished this year is yeah i I can look back on it like in a third party thing and just be amazed i don't know why i'm not i don't feel like i'm racing any different my cars are not running any different i guess it's just luck it's before I even went to the million, I thought if I don't win around for the whole rest of the year, I still got to be happy with the year I've had. So, like you said, it was icing on the cake. Yeah, and you know, obviously, everybody that's winning at a high level, Kenny, has some luck, quote unquote luck. But you create a lot of that too by making really good decisions. You know, knowing when you're ahead the right amount, knowing when you're behind, doing what you got to do, and you know, watching you race there Sunday, I saw you use two or three different strategies round by round. And, you know, it just, it's a testament to your ability to make quick decisions and decide what you need to do to ultimately get the advantage on your opponent. And it it seems to be working extremely well for you. Yeah, I definitely raced my opponent. I don't, a lot of people are, you know, I'm going to dial my car, run, you know, run my number and Whatever happens, happens. You know, they'll look over at the other guy and race them, but they already have a strategy before they go in. Me, I, it's according to who the opponent is, how they race. Hopefully I know. And what kind of, you know, the the ET they're dialed has a lot to do with my dial. So there's a lot of things that go into it other than just, you know, my own race. Yeah, that's obvious. So I guess really all we need to say from this point on is, Congratulations, not only on being a two-time million-dollar winner now, but uh, having a season of all seasons. It's been fun to watch as we've done the podcast week by week. We seem to talk about you quite a bit, and it's obviously because of your tremendous amount of success this year. So, Kenny, congrats on not just a great week, but an amazing year. You're very deserving. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me on the show. I was a little nervous, but I feel better now. Well, we've enjoyed having you, but we're not done yet. So you you probably okay. you move around quite a bit. You might not get to listen to the podcast very much, but we do what we call rapid fire at the end of every interview with a superstar like yourself. Luke and I are going to ask you just kind of five quick questions, and you just give us your one-liner or whatever, ever how you want to answer it. You think you up for that? All right. All sure. right. So, Kenny, this is going to get – us to know you a little bit better what's your favorite song that's a tough one free bird oh it's i've tough. been looking to leonard skinner all day down the road so <laughs> favorite racing facility a mockley i don't even know if you go on vacation kenny but what's your favorite vacation spot no such thing <laughs> <laughs> come on jed kenny's life is a vacation <laughs> Yeah, I wish. <laughs> a mockley for that answer, too. <laughs> You've had a couple of days to process it now. You don't have to get super specific, but uh, one thing that you're doing with the money. I already spent it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I bought a motorhome today. So, Kenny, last question. If you could be any animal, which one would you be? I don't know. What does everybody else say? <laughs> um, Across the board. <laughs> A bird would be fun. You could fly. bird would be wonderful. I'd be a cheetah just because I don't have the ability to run very well. And I would just like to see <laughs> what it feels like to have that kind of wind in my face. But a bird, that, that's a great animal to be. Kenny, 
Thanks a lot, man. We appreciate you very much sharing your insight and, and talking to us about your amazing week in Montgomery. Again, congrats on a heck of a week and season. And uh, again, good luck as you got more racing going forward. Hopefully it keeps going your way. I appreciate it. Thank you. Jed, did you just ask the winner of the million dollar race if he could be any animal, what would he be? <laughs> yeah. Is that the way we ended that interview? A good journalist asks the hard questions. And I ask the hard, yeah, I ask the hard questions. We report on what we see at the racetrack. That's journalism. So, yeah, I, I did ask him. But he's old news. Kenny's a two-time million-dollar winner. Now we have a young man joining us, has promised that has had – Arguably the best bracket racing season a 17-year-old young man has ever had. And he just capped that off with a million-dollar runner-up finish in, I would say, grand fashion. Great to have Corey Gulitti on the phone with us tonight. Corey, how you doing, bud? I'm not doing too bad. Still a little sore, but I'm good for the most part. Glad that's my only issue. Yeah, we're all glad of that. No doubt, man. No doubt. A little bit of background for our listeners that may not be as familiar with your racing history. Two quick questions. When were you first introduced to racing? I know it's been in the family, in the blood. And then when did you first take the wheel of a race car? I I don't know exactly when mom told me I first came into or came to the racetrack. I think I was five months old, four months old, something like that. I mean, as long as I can remember, Dad's been doing it. And my first time getting into juniors, I think about a month after I turned eight years old, and that's where it all started for me. Yeah, so, Corey, obviously you've accomplished a ton in the past 12 months, and that's been very well documented. Uh, If nowhere else, just here by us, we've talked about you quite a bit on the show. Many of our listeners aren't as familiar with your junior dragster career. We know it was very successful. Can you share some brief highlights from juniors? What were your major accomplishments? I think, you know, my biggest one was Bristol last year, I'd say, winning that the five, the Huddleston Performance 5K shootout. And I got, I think when I was 13, I won a $2,500 race, which at the time was a pretty big deal, which now, I mean, that's like your weekly thing, but I've had a very good junior career, that's for sure. And yeah, the funny just, thing is, you know, people ask me, there's a junior race locally in Southwest, one of our junior series coming up this weekend. People are, hey, man, you going to come race this weekend? The junior? I'm like, I don't know. It's probably not a good idea. <laughs> well, I don't know if it's a bad idea or not, but, um, you know, it's obviously I understand your thought process there. But, so you – Entered the 2017 million last year at 16. You're 17 now. We've talked about that at length. You made the split in last year's million. Is that correct? No, I, I actually, I think I lost second round or something. I didn't do too hot. It was uh, in the Vegas million this year. I made it to the round before the split. But other than that, I haven't done anything, any kind of million. That's but, what I was thinking about. That's my bad, yeah. Corey. I think we even said earlier no, you made the split at 16. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Regardless, you came into this year's event riding a heater, a hot streak, and knowing, even if you hadn't necessarily been deep in the million, knowing that you were capable of going deep into the main event, we'll obviously get to 
what happened in round six and what happened afterwards. But take us through like the first five rounds of the million. What was going through your head? How were things rolling? How how did you feel coming into round six? You know, it was it was kind of a weird feeling because you know I'm used to watching the million on Saturday or racing the million on Saturday, and it happened to be Sunday. And to me, it honestly it felt like just another race, and I think that's what helped me keep my composure leading up to let's say sixth round. And I wasn't great, but I was good when I needed to be, and that's that's really all that mattered for me. And the funny part is, I hadn't I hadn't drove that blue car in a while, and I'm thinking, man, I forgot how much I like driving this thing. It's it's a lot of fun. You know, I was having <laughs> I was having a good time. <laughs> The uh, no, to your point, we talked about it at length earlier. How the how much different the atmosphere was completing that event late on a Sunday than normal. You know, the crowd certainly thinned down, just right. a different feel at the event. But I never really thought about specifically in your shoes how that's going to feel a little bit more normal, almost a little bit more comforting. You think that that actually played a role in some of your success? I do, for sure. I mean, I here lately the hot streak I've been on, I've just tried to stay as calm as i can and just go up there like it, let's say it's a time trial or something just go up there and race and don't think about it and that definitely helped me out a lot especially feeling like you know it's like man i feel like this should be a 25 grander but it's not this is the million that gets that through my head later on but it still hadn't even hit me well speaking of later on Corey, you get to round six there's 14 cars remaining you've got a guy that has accomplished a ton in our sports late Cummings from your vantage point, And we talked about this in a winter circle, so I know kind of where you're headed, but tell us what happened. Well, in the lanes, after we were talking, I, I was I, not going to lie to y'all. I had a, I had a weird stomach feeling just something didn't feel right or whatever. And then my buddy, good buddy, Jake Clayton come up to me cause he was leaving and he told me, Hey, drive smart or drive safe or something along those lines and hunter Patton came up to me and was like hey it's slick out there and so that i roll in the water box i normally don't do this but i i cranked down on my seat belts just because i had that feeling and went down there and got on the brakes a little too hard harder than i should have especially for the conditions that were there and it ended up getting me so you've obviously admitted to that and and I think maybe through that thought process you had where you tighten in the belts and all those things, you're running a guy that's known for being able to drop somebody off and that will, will hold as many as he wants to hold. You think that played into your strategy a little differently than you normally would, or is this just yeah. the way I, I you think like to it did. I think it did a little bit, especially for that round, knowing it's we're at 14 cars in the million and it's Slate Cummings. He's a, he's a driver. He's been a good driver. He's one I've watched for a while. And I felt like I needed to, if he was doing what I thought he was going to do, I felt like I just needed to do what I was doing just a little bit harder, so to speak. Yeah. I know that all of that stuff happens in an instant. And at the same time, it's like a, a second can replay an hour in your mind. Did you, know that you had won or did you have enough time to see the scoreboards before you realized I, oh, i'm crashing i had caught my wind light about just maybe a half a second before i realized i'm in his lane heading towards the wall it seems like at the time mm. and it, it looking back at the video it happened real fast but at the time it felt like slow motion 
as they would I, say. I bet. So the car came to a stop, and you obviously still had your wits about you and probably knew exactly what was going on. But what was your first thought, Corey, when the car came to a stop? Was, uh, I got to get out of this thing. <laughs> I got out of it fairly <laughs> quickly, and it was Nathan Martin was there and Spencer Massey, I think it was. They were the first ones there to help me out. And, you know, it, I uh, walked over, sat on the wall, and until Dad got there, and Dad got there in a hurry. Another thing, I called out of the car, and I could see Bird was making a hit in the Nova is what it seemed like to me. <laughs> but he was, <laughs> yeah, he, he was he just coming down, down there. there to check on me. Yeah, he got down there quick, which I'm very happy, very thankful for everyone that had my back there. I, honestly, I, I don't remember everyone that was down there. I just remember hugging my dad and sitting on the wall, and it kind of went blank until Mom and my girlfriend Caroline got down there, and then it was all a blur. It was, it was pretty crazy. Take us through. Uh, I mean, and I'm sure it's sensory overload there for a number of reasons, but just like chronologically, the next 20 minutes or so. I guess my biggest question is: At what point, or how soon after, were you told that? should you choose to you are still in the race like you have the option to drive another car at what point was that brought to your attention and had it ever crossed your mind up to then it was probably five ten minutes afterwards and i was they were sitting i was sitting in the ambulance they were checking me out everything checked out good and I forgot who told me but dad was like you know you're still in this race right and at the time i was still pretty shaken up and i was like you know i i think i'm just gonna i think i'm done for the night that was that was a little bit too much, and, you know, after I walked back to the trailer and sat down for a while, chilled out, we went to the motorhome, me, my mom, my dad, and Carol McCarty, Caroline, and we went and sat there and talked about it a little bit, and that's when Mikey Bloomfield came in the motorhome and basically sat down, serious face for once. I've never seen Mikey be serious before, but he was serious as can be, and basically sat me down and said, look, if you feel able to do this, you should do this because you might not ever have this chance again this deep in the million. This could be your shot here. You just never know if you don't try. So that's what really got me. And Bird came in there, you know, trying to make some light out of it. And he said something like, you know, he said, at least you crashed when you did because I crashed, I was in a time trial. So I think you should get back out there and do it again or get out, get back out there and get back at it. Since you're still in. So it was an experience. So, Corey, you're getting out of the car that was going for 70s, and there's a 440 car waiting on you, and that's your dad's. How difficult was the decision to, to get in his car and attempt to finish? You know, honestly, like like I said in my interview, I was I was very nervous at first, but I felt like once I started, get got, once I got in the car and got everything on it, it felt natural again. I, I drove the car before, but it had been a, a good yeah, I think it was back in May the last time I drove it. And knowing how slick the track was and going that fast, that kind of crossed my mind for a little while. But I just kind of pushed through it and just tried to do what I needed to do. And it luckily was worked last, out for a few more rounds. When was the last time that car had been down the track? Obviously, you drove it in May, but when was the last time it had been r- raced? I think Dad lost third round in it or something along the lines like that. He okay. he, he did decent. Wasn't bad. Yeah, no. It had been a few hours. 
So. Old man's got some talent. He knows what's going on on the racetrack. Oh, yeah. So so you guys obviously have made the decision now. You're getting in the car. You're going to come back out and compete. Uh, I saw your dad post on social media on uh, on DragRacerSults.com that plan was for you to just kind of do a burnout, see how you felt, and then make your decision from there. And when he saw you do the big burnout, he, he felt confident you were going to attempt to go out and compete and move forward. But all that said, there's still a, a you know a box setting and a dial-in that, that has to be selected. How difficult was that process? Me and Dad, are, I, I think at most we're five-style apart in delay, maybe a hundredth, but it's it's not much. So the delay box wasn't such an issue. It was the dialing, you know, would it get out there and rattle a little bit, being that the track's bad, going that fast, and me weighing a hundred pounds lighter, or not a hundred, but a good <laughs> eighty or so. <laughs> but the dialing, especially running scotty richardson which didn't make it any easier and a s10 pickup which you can't really judge going that fast that was the dialing was i think our biggest challenge of that round for sure and i went down there and lifted where i thought i needed to lift to be close to dead on and got lucky but i'll take that luck over skill any day Yeah, come. In. I wanna I wanna talk a little bit about that round, Corey, because your head's got to be spinning for a number of different reasons, and then you've got the the challenge of hopping in a car that you haven't driven in months, that hasn't been on the track in hours. So you're selecting to dial in, figuring out what to put in the delay box, coming off of an awful, I mean, vicious looking crash less than an hour before, and there's seven cars left in the million, so there's a ton of money on the line. And you're paired with arguably the best racer of all time. Like, can you, I know in the moment, there's no way you could possibly process all of that. Three days later, like, can you begin to explain what's going through your mind? And I was told at some point, I think Hunter told me when you guys went up there that, well, he's just going to chip it and let it hit the tires and see how he feels. And I thought, well, I know how that's going to go. You know what I mean? He ain't giving up until it's over. But what, what kind of walked me through the thought process on your end coming into that matchup? Uh, I mean, I didn't like, uh, or I didn't feel like I was in favor to win that round, but I liked my chances, so to speak. I felt confident enough to go up there, and I mean, I think I let go 12 that round after that wreck. And I knew when I let go, I was like, I think I got it there. <laughs> and there's a car left, and got out there and it it moved around a little bit but it's about what i expected and the wind light came on and i was just kind of like wow i just pulled that off i i couldn't believe it myself and <laughs> the whole the whole thing's still kind of coming to me it's just i can't believe more of the fact that i crashed the car much less run it up in the million it it still hasn't really gotten to me like it was yeah there might not ever be another finalist, Corey, in the history of the million dollar race that that will have the scenario that you had. So it is definitely obviously burned in your memory for the rest of your life. But what other specific memories or notes do you have, say, from the semi or final round? What anything crazy go on in your head? Any weird thought process or were you just very confident and go up there and do your thing you know i think my mind was about as cleared as it possibly could be surprisingly 
I mean, after going through what I went through, I didn't feel like anything could really mess with me <laughs> more than it already had before. And like I said, it, it almost just felt like just another race. I didn't really realize what I was really doing. Being, or I say that just, I didn't realize how big it was until afterwards. I just, you know, that whenever they were talking money, I just stayed by the car and I didn't even know what I was racing for in the final. I just knew I just went up there and was just going to go let go and try and win the round. So Along. I, I was less nervous than I, I was less nervous than I thought I would be. I can say that, which helped me out a lot. Well, and I, there's as odd as this probably sounds and, and seems, I guess there's something to be said for going through what you went through and knowing that like, when you stage up in the semis of the final, like, okay, well, what's the worst that could happen? You know, <laughs> like there's, yeah. there's almost got to be some perspective right. there. I guess to that point, you you had alluded to this a little bit earlier, but I'm not telling you anything that you don't know, especially now three days removed and be in the center of this social media firestorm, right? The narrative here is most seem to fall on one extreme or the other. Like either you should have been disqualified and in most events you would have, you're reckless, you're a spoiled rich kid, you're a dad, or you're a freaking hero for having the courage to hop right back in the car and almost enjoy that storybook ending. Like there's really no in between, right? Everybody's weighing in on an extreme. And I'm not going to ask you, like that's a lot for anyone, much less someone at 17 years old. Like I'm not going to ask you to to give me a diatribe on okay, this is where I stand, but just personally, man, like, how are you dealing with that? Like, be in the center of all of this talk, controversy, attention, like, that's a lot, dude. The memes that everyone are, that everybody's making, I, I find it funny, to be honest. I, I feel like we, uh, we might as well make the best out of the situation, being that I'm okay. And everyone that's making them are my friends, and they're just poking fun at me, which I'm okay with now. The people talking mess about how, oh, I shouldn't have done this and that. I just, I feel like it's best for me not to even go look at it because it's pretty relevant. It doesn't matter. Most of the guys that are talking that way will never attend that race, never had plans to attend that race. Some of them don't even race. So that, them, them guys really don't matter to me, the ones that are dogging on me. So that's really the way I've been dealing with it. What the events that transpired Sunday night, craziest most bizarre scenario i've ever witnessed and i I mean don't expect to ever see anything like that again right crazy i sure hope not (laughs) right you've uh, you certainly hope not to be the center of it if it does i'm sure you've had a few days now to process it all like can you are you at a point yet to say okay here's what i've learned from all of this mess i've definitely learned my lesson to not be so aggressive you know when lights aren't as important as your life and i feel like i learned that lesson the hard way but i learned it luckily and i'm okay from it so moving on moving forward i will definitely be more careful in the race car and hopefully nothing like that happens again well said jed you want to break it to him how how we're not going to let him off the hook although i feel like this has been one of the more difficult conversations and interviews in podcast history yeah so Corey, i don't know if you get to listen to the show but when we're done with an interview we don't necessarily just let you go we we like to do what we call rapid fire 
And uh, Luke and I will ask you five questions, and they're kind of short questions, and you just give us kind of your one-liner answer to it, uh, whatever pops up in your head. Do you think you're up for that? That sounds good to me. What if we asked you what kind of animal you would be, if you could be any kind of animal, would you be prepared for that? That's a great question. I would be prepared. I'd oh, wow. Definitely be a, well, go ahead and answer it. Sure. I'd be a, I'd be a bald eagle for sure. Because <laughs> <See>? America. <laughs> hey, I mean. That was a good question. Granted, he had 20 minutes to prepare for that, but like that was more impressive than Kenny. <laughs> Corey, one celebrity who annoys you the most. Ooh. Oh. I'd probably have to say uh, Kim Kardashian because mom likes to watch Keeping Up with the Kardashians and I can't stand it. That's a great answer. <laughs> Corey, what's your favorite social media outlet? Facebook. Racer that you admire the most? Luke Bogacki. <laughs> oh, sure. good answer. I don't get to ask this to very many. Go ahead, Luke. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say that's like an obligatory response. We've gotten that before. It makes me very uncomfortable, but thank you, Corey. <laughs> <laughs> I don't get to ask this to a million-dollar finalists very often, so uh, I had to ask. <laughs> What's your favorite subject in school? Oh. <laughs> None Lunch. of the above. <laughs> no. I don't <laughs> <laughs> I'd have to say uh, math. Okay. It's Good not answer. my strongest, but I actually enjoy it a little bit more than the others. Makes sense. It's probably served you well in the racing world, too. If you could travel anywhere in the world, it would be? I'd have to say uh, probably Australia, because them guys are crazy. (laughs) (laughs) I would like to go to Australia, too. And I'd definitely be at the racetrack, for sure. (laughs) Take me with you when you go. Corey, Um, man, we appreciate you joining us tonight. Obviously, a lot has been put on your plate in the last few days from afar, it looks like you're handling it about as well as you could possibly handle it, regardless of age. I know that's a lot due to your upbringing and the leadership that you have in your household, but really, really proud of you for standing up to this and saying where you made mistakes and, again, trying to move on from it. I think that shows a lot of maturity at such a young age. And proud of you, man. Hope uh, hope things continue to go your way, and we really appreciate you joining us. Yeah, thank y'all for having me on. It's definitely been one. It's been crazy the last three, four days, but, you know, I I feel like the best way to move on from something like that is to own up to your mistakes and move on from it. So that's basically the way I've been taking it. Very well said, young man. No doubt. Great approach, and uh, congratulations, man. Heck of a show. Yep. Thank y'all. Uh, go get back on Facebook or Door Slammers or whatever it was you were, we interrupted and have a real good <laughs> night. <but. laughs> All right. Thank y'all very much. Thanks, Corey. Have a good one. Honey, where are we racing next week? It's time to discuss next week's major events, news, updates, releases, and announcements. It's What's on Tap. All right, Luke, uh, we talked a lot of racing, but there's uh, a lot of racing on tap for the weekend, and there's good bracket racing on the top and the bottom, and some NHRA racing as well, the Triple Crown 25s, which is actually 
uh, this week, uh, 20, a 50, and a 15, Wesley Washington and Danny Waters Jr. will be putting that race on in Darlington. So a nice big purse there. More big purses available to the top bubbers. Um, the NHRA Toyota Nationals are in Las Vegas uh, this weekend. I, I got a uh, text from Langdon today showing him playing golf out there in Vegas, living the hard life. So look forward to seeing the NHRA boys take it to the big show on the strip. Noble Oklahoma Divisional Lucas Oil Race, the reschedule is this weekend as well. And a race that uh, near and dear to me, the BTE Southern Footbrake Challenge, the sixth one of these in Holly Springs, Mississippi. I'll be leaving in the morning, headed over. Uh, we're going to get some rain tomorrow. Uh, it uh, will not allow Thursday's action to happen as we're going to have test and tune in the gambler's race. But it looks like Friday, Saturday, and Sunday are looking really nice. And we're going to get started with our 10 granders on Friday morning for the footbrake guys there at Holly Springs, Mississippi. Again, the sixth BT Southern Footbrake Challenge. So looking forward to that as well. And other than that, that's going to wrap us up, guys. This episode of the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast will go down in history as probably the longest ever. And we definitely want to say thanks to the great sponsors that helped us be here for uh, six or eight hours. And that is BTE, uh, This is Bracket Racing Elite, and of course, the Great American Bracket Race. And uh, Luke, you are shortening it up this week, but it's still awesome. Shout out time. Yeah, first and foremost, shout out to you, the listener. If you have made it to this point, two plus hours into episode 100 of the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast, we love you. <laughs> I mean, yeah. bless your heart. If you haven't made it this far, um, you're dead to me. But um, you're not listening to this, so you don't care anyway. Um, I, w- I would definitely want to shout out anyone who knew specific who anyone who knows now but specifically anyone who knew (laughs) up until about 30 minutes ago what kind of animal they would be if they could be any kind of animal (laughs) shout out to you if you've given that thought at any point in your life um shout out to scott carmen and joe parton they were the two finalists on wednesday at the million who we failed to mention shout out to polygraph tests i know that's out of the blue um shout out to tyler bohannon uh tybo Superstock winner at Gateway actually gives himself it's it's a bit of an outside chance, but he's got a shot to win the world championship in Superstock, and he's headed west, take, packing up his game, heading out west. Uh, Saw Tybo entered in Vegas this weekend. He'd have to go on a run out west, but he's got a shot. And how many times do you have a shot to win the world championship? Shout out to him, and for that matter, um, shout out to everybody that uh, won or runnered up at Rockingham or at St. Louis. We didn't really give those events any coverage because of the million, but uh, so sorry for not uh, calling you out by name, but uh, shout out to all the winners and runner-ups on the NHRA Tour last weekend. Well, I'm going to break that just a little bit and say shout out to Jonathan Anderson because Jonathan was in the uh, Moser yes. shootout and, and was winner and runner up in that thing, which is really cool. No offense to any of the other winners. We wish we could have got to everybody, but my, my man, Jonathan Anderson, uh, we've talked about him a lot on the show. So great job by you, Jonathan. You'll probably never hear this, but you still did really good. In Guys, a world where Kenny Underwood winning two millions doesn't exist and Corey Galetti doesn't wreck his bleep off and then come back and run her up the million. <laughs> Jonathan Anderson is this week's BT who's hot and like the headline story. Any other week? Yes. 
Just any other week. <laughs> Guys, be sure to tell us what you think. Message us right there on the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast Facebook page, or you can at either Luke or myself right there on the Twitter. Luke is at Luke Bogacki, B-O-G-A-C-K-I, and I am at JP11X. Thanks to our guests, uh, Kenny Underwood and Corey Gulitti. Great interviews by those guys. It was a long show, but it was awesome, fun to talk about, and we appreciate you listening if you're hearing this. Guys, we look forward to talking to you next week. See you then. Banging on the door, bump, bump, bump until I get it in. Attitude like I am already winning in. Foot breaking in anything. Luke, welcome to episode 100. It still sounds goofy. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Enrollment in This Is Bracket Racing Elite is now open. You've heard me discuss, or at least reference, This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It is the premier offering of our website, thisisbracketracing.com. Elite is a membership community designed specifically to help you get from where you are today as a racer to who you want to be as a racer. Led by knowledgeable professionals, Justin Lamb and myself are longtime instructors and we bring in a host of guests, racers that you know, racers that you respect, led by knowledgeable instructors and surrounded by supportive peers that are ultimately striving for the same goal in their own unique way. The truth is at each event, there are a hundred plus entries. There's one winner. At the end of each season, there's one champion. That feeling, not so much the money, not so much the trophy, that feeling of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, that tip of the cap from your peers, that's why we do this. You can dream of that feeling all you want, or you can take action, take steps toward becoming that racer. If you're ready to take the first step, this is Bracket Racing Elite is for you. Enrollment is open now for a limited time. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite before we close the doors again on December the 8th.